Our passage in Romans 5 this morning that was just read to us by Shannon, it contains uh, a top 10 verse. If we kept such a list, we don't. At least in theory, we don't elevate any one verse over another. But I refer here, of course, to verse 8. Romans 5, 8, very well trafficked, very well quoted. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's a good reason that particular verse is uh, a go-to over and over by so many in Romans because it really covers the waterfront. Now, verse 6 and verse 10 say similar. And I want you to, as you look at verses 6 through 11, note that we've got similar phrases in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. We've got a time stamp. When God meets us. Verse 6, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if There's another while statement, while we were enemies. And so while we were weak slash ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, God did for us what we would not do for him. In a word, we would not love him. He would love us. God did for us what we would not do for him. That in a sentence is this passage in Romans 5. God did for us what we would not do for him. We would not love him. I think a waterfront, I've called this the gospel waterfront, I think a waterfront is a good image for covering this passage because like most waterfronts, it mixes both the beautiful uh, and the not beautiful. Uh, you look at a waterfront of a city, it's, it's beautiful. You get down to it and you've got some pollution in the water. Uh, this is a beautiful text. It really preaches itself, and I don't mind telling you a good thing for me this morning. We've been moving this week. <laughs> if you've ever moved, I need a text this weary morning that kind of preaches itself. I just sort of stand behind this one and say, go, do the work that you're appointed to do, text. You know, I don't have to do a lot. And so rather than offer you a couple of points as I try to do that sort of gather this whole text together... I want us to just walk along this passage almost like we were walking along a waterfront together and just take in the view that each verse in succession is meant to give us. To get the whole vista at first before we do that, walk through each verse one by one. This verse is, uh, this passage is so encouraging and it got me to thinking about how often I've had the experience, and you have too if you've been in church uh, long, How often I've gathered with other Christians in homes, in in other places, an intentional time is taken, and it might be it might be planned, it might be spontaneous, but intentional time will be taken to affirm someone. Uh, There's not another group on earth who does this as frequently or as well as the Lord's people. It happened last weekend. It's something I attended. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna gather here and. And you can volunteer or let's go around the room and, and we're going to all affirm this person or, or this couple or we're all, all going to affirm each other. Christians do this and we can't do it enough really, not just because we believe in it, but because we're believers. It comes out of something. It's an overflow. The encouragement that we give to one another is an overflow of the encouragement that we get in a text 
like this one. We, we believe in this text what the God of the universe feels about us, even though he does all this for us in the condition in which we are in naturally in our sin. But when you think about encouragement, this is an encouraging text. And when you think about it, more people than you realize are dying for some encouragement. I mean dying us for some sense of what they mean to others, what they mean to anyone. And without encouragement, a part of us does slowly die. And so the church is a, is a mutual admiration society by God's design. This is why when, when people jockey for position or who's more right than the church, is why it's so destructive. The church is meant to be a mutual admiration society by God's design, but this happens among us like it does, not because we're just pulling it out of the air. It happens because of gospel vision, a vision of the Lord's goodness to each and all of us, which we get in a text like this one, and then we repeat to each other in a variety of ways. The reason Christians take time to encourage one another is because how great our gospel is. The reason Christians take time to encourage each other is because of how self-giving our God is. I don't mean to be Sally Fields about this at her Oscar speech years ago. You know, you like me, you like me. You really do like me. But God really does love his people. And yes, likes us too. In fact, if you think of his love without his liking you, why? Why would you draw that line? Why think of it like that? Loving is different from liking. I recognize that. It is possible to love someone without liking them. Love your enemies, for instance. Jesus' instruction to us in the Sermon on the Mount comes to mind. But in reconciling us to himself, which is what this passage teaches, in reconciling us to himself, the enmity is God. We're no longer God's enemies. And his love for us then includes his liking us. Why Why wouldn't it? He doesn't love us in an antiseptic way, though his love does cleanse us of everything he would otherwise condemn us for. He doesn't love us in a sympathy card kind of way. He loves us in the particular way of justification and reconciliation. You have those words in our text. And they're words, justification. He justifies us by his blood. He's reconciled us to himself. These are words about the self-giving of God. The love of God for his people is not mere sentimentality. It's not sentimentality at all. I want to call it a load-bearing love. That is, we can put all our weight individually and collectively on his love for us. We can count on it even if we don't feel it. And adding to this, it's a love that's internally consistent even when God is wrathful. This passage makes mention, see it, of God's love and wrath both, and many consider that a contradiction in terms, and yet God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Now that requires some explanation, saying that. And the reason it does is because we associate wrath with rage, But it's not that. Wrath is because God is not indifferent. This is how we say God is wrathful because God is love. The opposite of love is not hate but apathy, indifference. And so to say that wrath is because God is not indifferent 
Before I keep going on that line, let me say, lest anyone mishear me, God engages wrath in a way we cannot. The wrath of men is almost always raging, but that's not God's wrath. I, I, a man comes to mind. I knew this man years ago. It's been a long time since I've had interaction with him. But when I was in my first church in Franklin, Tennessee, this guy was in Nashville. He wasn't from there, but he was there uh, with a mission organization. He was preparing his family to go to Europe. They were going as missionaries. And he and I had a mutual friend, and our mutual friend said, uh, he's there for the summer. Why don't y'all get together? I think you'll enjoy uh, lunches. And we did that. He would bring a brown bag to the church building where I worked, and, and uh, he and I would lunch there in a Sunday school room and got to know each other. Then I lost touch with him when he moved at the end of the summer. But later, our mutual friend told me the guy's mission organization pulled him off the field because he had a problem with raging. He was verbally abusive to his family. His kids and wife were in terror of him most of the time. But he would justify it by saying, I'm teaching my kids why they never want to suffer the wrath of God. Now, I didn't see that side of him, but that's a man who doesn't need a ministry engagement. He needs intensive therapies. And he was uh, sent to a place in California, as I recall, to try to unpack why all that was in him and to engage a a process of repentance to try to piece his family back together. But I, I tell you that because the wrath of men is like that. It's almost always raging, and that's not God's wrath. God is wrathful not in spite of his love, but because God is love, meaning he's not indifferent. Say it again. The opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. It is apathy. Hate at least feels something, and we have hate in this passage in the word enemies. Verse 10, we'll get to that. But indifference feels nothing. God's wrath is a function of God's felt hatred of that which hurts who and what he genuinely loves. To say God is love is to say he's anything but indifferent. Now, with all this in view, with all that as sort of the the waterfront before us, let's walk this passage and be encouraged by it because it says a lot of encouraging things to us. Verse 6 For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You've got two human markers here. You've got weak and ungodly. See both in verse 6? How are these encouraging to be called weak and ungodly? Well, they're not encouraging as standalones, but for what God does in coming alongside us in these states of being. What is weakness? What is ungodliness? Weakness is not always negative, but here in this context, it's conveying the fact of our helplessness that we could not do for ourselves what we needed God to do for us. Could not do it and would not do it, which bleeds over into what it means to be ungodly. And we've seen this word before in Romans. In fact, back in chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Ungodly conveys what? It conveys indifference to God. In fact, in a lot of renderings, you'll get ungodly rendered godless 
Why godless without a God? Because the ungodly person is marked by an indifference to God, an apathy toward God. Again, just to see the waterfront again. Verse 6, you've got ungodly. Verse 8, you've got sinners. Verse 10, you've got enemies. I pointed these out at the start. Here's the waterfront of our natural condition before God. It's polluted in that. What do each one of these terms mean? Verse 6, ungodly means we're indifferent. Verse 10, enemies means we hate him. And verse 8, sinners, covers everything in between. But weakness and ungodliness, focusing here on verse 6, weakness and ungodliness is a one-two punch against ourselves, but it's entirely self-inflicted. We could not and we would not love God. That's what it means to be weak. We could not, and ungodly means we would not. We were indifferent. But he loved us. Look at verse 5 from last week. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Verse 8 will repeat about God's love. But verse 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What's the right time about? That's a time stamp. While we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, at the right time... Christ died for us. Here's a time stamp in our text, verse 6, with no expiration. The death of Christ for the weak and the ungodly, which includes all of us, it had to take place in time. It had to take place in time as we know it and live it because human weakness, human ungodliness, it cuts across Not just all people who live, but all time as well. So why this time stamp in our text? Verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, the while we were statements at the right time statement of verse 6. Why do you get this time stamp? Because we relate to time in parts. God relates to time as a whole, meaning he sees it all. He sees the past, the present, and the future. We relate to time in parts, but not God. At any given moment, we're either privileging the past or the present or the future. We all live in the present, but some of us will privilege the past over the present. We'll say it was better back then. Others will privilege the present over the past. It's never been better than now. Others privilege the future over the present. You can always find them in line at the Apple store when the new phone comes out. It will get better as we keep moving forward. And we really do a bit of all three. We always relate to time in parts. God does not. Now, here's why this is important. Look down at verse 8. I'm not skipping over verse 7. I'll come back to it. But God shows his love for us. That's present tense. Based upon a past action, God shows his love for us. Some translations, God demonstrates, but it's present tense. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is doing this now. Doing what? Showing his love for us through that event way in the past that proves it. You see that? 
God shows his love for us, present tense, right now, today, in this moment, showing his love to you, for you, but it's through what? An event that happened at the right time in the past. That's why this time stamp in our passage has no expiration. What is it saying to us? The cross will never go out of date. It's the way God sees time. He sees it as a whole. And why should this matter to us that it happened at the right time? Because that means God committed himself, hear this, he committed himself in person, in actual time, to securing our reconciliation with him in love. That's a mind-boggling thing to say. It's a pity that we're so used to the idea. Christ died for the ungodly while we were indifferent to him. Christ died for sinners while we were still chasing sin. God did for us what we would not do for him. He commits himself in person, in actual time, to securing our reconciliation with him. Reconciliation, the repeated word, verses 10 and 11. Why does he do this? His love. But you've got to understand something vital about God's love. God doesn't pay the price he paid so that he could love us, but because he loves us already. If you take nothing else from this sermon, understand that. God doesn't pay the price he paid so that he could love us. That means it is theologically imprecise and just plain incorrect for somebody to say, well, for God to love me, The Lord had to go to the cross. It's not for God to love you. It's because God loves you that Christ went to the cross. That's key. You have to get the order right. Again, I didn't mean to skip over verse 7. If if your eyes are on verse 7 here, just note that it's a point of logic. Verse 7 is utilizing the lesser to greater rule in logic. Verse 7 is saying, you know, you might give your life. You have nothing greater to give, by the way, than your life. You might give your life to spare or save a good person, as we count good people, or a person you already love. But what about a person who's wronged you, spited you, hated you, hurt you or someone you love or been indifferent to you? Die for him? Die for her? Is there a scenario where I would give up my life for someone who's hated my life or otherwise cheapened it? That's almost unimaginable. Give up my son? For one such as, as that is, is unimaginable. I would not give up one I love with my whole heart for one who is as far away from loving me as they can get. No way. I wouldn't give up an afternoon for that person. The logic in verse 7 is a lesser to greater logic. It builds on itself. It bridges verse 6 and verse 8 because verse 6, notice it again, mentions our weakness. Get the terms. A weakness gets at our inability to do for God, namely to love him. We have to have him love us first, and that's the testimony of Scripture. But the mention of our being sinners, verse 8, this gets at our unwillingness. So weakness talks about our inability. That's in verse 6. And then you get to verse 8. In fact, weakness and ungodliness in verse 6, our inability and our Um, our apathy, our indifference. Now you get to verse 8, 
Look at the mention of our being sinners. This gets at our unwillingness to love God due to disordered love. So even if you catch a fragrance of the answer in your indifference, you still don't have the willingness. Verse 8, sinners, unwillingness to love God due to disordered love. That's what sin is. We withhold love. The love we have to give, we withhold it from God and or spend it entirely on other persons, places, or things. Sin is disordered love. I've used this classic Augustinian definition for sin many times with you because it is just so accurate. As sin gets portrayed in Scripture, there's all kinds of images that get used. Uh, it's missing the mark. It's, it's lawlessness. Uh, it, it, there's all kinds of images that, that get used uh, for what sin is. But when you say that sin is disordered love, it, it, this encompasses it all. And I've said it before in here and we'll say it again, that in sin, the mark of sin is that we love, it's disordered love, so we love the wrong things and we love the right things in the wrong ways. That's sin. It's a disordered love. Now let's keep the whole scene in view here. We're covering the gospel waterfront in just a few verses. Weak, in verse 6, gets at our inability to love God. Ungodly, verse 6, gets at our indifference toward God. And then we're coming to it in verse 10. Enemies gets at our hatred of God. But verse 8, sinners, is every bit of unwillingness in between, including the sin you don't even know to call sin. Because we don't know the half of our sin. Remember, this passage is really three main statements about when God loves us. It's a, it's a time stamp. While we were weak slash ungodly, verse 6. While we were sinners, verse 8. While we were enemies, verse 10. God loves us. What is this saying to us? God loves us in the comprehensive condition of our rebellion. It's not just our fallenness. Oh, poor us. Blame it on Adam and Eve. It's our rebellion ongoing. We've all participated. God loves us in the comprehensive condition of our rebellion. I don't know better news to tell you than that. If you were indifferent toward him, he loved you. If you hated him, he loved you. If you were anything in between, including clueless as to who you were before him in your sin, he loved you as well and does not, therefore, condemn you in Christ. He would put himself in our place of judgment for us to know we occupy a place of being loved by him. This is our passage. This is our gospel. Verse 8, God shows his love for us. Not just in the past, but ongoing. How does he show you? He takes you back to the cross again and again and again. This is how, per, this is how present tense works. It's perpetual. Based on this past action, God shows his love, present tense, for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know if you know who Karen Pryor is. If you went to Liberty University, you could have had her in an English class. She's an English professor there. She's written and uh, has a large Twitter following. And while visiting Nashville recently, she got hit by a bus. She was a pedestrian. 
threw her 15 to 20 feet in the air. She has extensive injuries, but God spared her life. And from her hospital bed, she wrote a little think piece Christianity Today picked up and put online called Sin is Like Walking in Front of a Bus. I tell you, the toughest people in the world are writers when it really comes right down to it. I don't know that I would be writing an article from my hospital bed if I'd been hit by a bus in Nashville, but Karen Pryor is doing that. And I thought she had some good perspective here for our purposes when she says this. Sin can be just a tiny step away from the standard, a split-second error in judgment, a little thing like paying too much attention to one thing and not enough to another. Because she's talking about this in the context of, I had turned around on the street to go back to my hotel. I wasn't even thinking, and I just walked out in front of a bus. One small lapse, she says, can cause great damage. The split second in which I did not see the bus resulted in the breaking of my body and the torment of physical and emotional pain, damage that will take months to heal. The moment in which I failed to see the bus rendered profound costs for many other people too, like the members of the medical teams serving in the ambulance crew, the witnesses to my accident who need prayers themselves because of what they, the, the trauma they witnessed that morning. And then the family and friends whose lives are now directly impacted by the care, concern, and service they offer out of their love for me. Even when the original error seems small and insignificant, sin is like walking in front of a bus. Now here might be where you expect me to say, but Jesus took the bus for us. But no, I'm going to say that. In actual fact, the bus hit us too. We've walked out in front of the bus in the persons of our original parents, Adam and Eve, but also we ourselves. To be healed from the penalty of sin, one has to bear sin's injuries. And we do, self-inflicted, even more than we realize. We don't really appreciate how impactful and incapacitating sin is, but it's even worse for us. Because not only did we ourselves walk in front of the bus... Daring it to hit us, as it were. But then we got in it. And we went looking for Jesus, not to bind up our injuries, but to run him over too. He didn't walk in front of our bus haphazardly or accidentally. It was utterly self-giving because he knew that his life would return to him. But the drivers of the bus who hit him was you, was me. We were looking to run him down. It wasn't accidental on our part either. And you know why? Because we like our sin that much. We love our sin. So much so we hate the one who will not let us have it. This is the human condition. This pollution is in your heart too. It may not completely and utterly fill up your heart, but it's in your heart. You good people, it's there too in us. Verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, look what it cost him, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are also reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have a difficult relationship with this term enemies because the better quality person you are, The gooder you are, to put it Alabamese for those who need the translation. 
You've grown up in church. You're from a good family. You've been taught well. We don't think of ourselves as enemies of God. And the reason why is because we think that enmity before God is expressed by the rip-roaring big sins. And see, we've been trained well. Our mamas and daddies taught us, stay away from that big stuff. Don't go there. Don't do that. And we heeded. We've taken good care to not be guilty of those big sins. That's good. Take nothing away from good raising. But God sees the substance of sin, not just the scale. And he knows the human heart naturally hates what or who blocks our way to what we want. If you're blocking my way to something, I see you as an enemy. I mean, we've just come through closing on a house. You know how adversarial that can get? You took the curtains. Suddenly, oh boy, you better put those curtains back now, you know. I mean, we're talking about curtains, right? And suddenly it's like you're under your breath. I hate those people. I wish they'd never bought our house, you know. What are you doing? You're being human, (laughs) You're being absolutely and completely human. Now, we didn't have that in our closing, just so you know, but I thought I would just insert it in there. We had a beautiful process start to finish. Loved our buyers, loved our sellers. Everything was great, truly. But I've been part of closings in the past. And maybe you've been part of some where suddenly it's like, is somebody about to pull a gun out and shoot me right now? Over curtains? Over dadgum curtains? See, people will, people will get hateful about stuff like that. Why? Well, it's not about the curtains. It's never been about the curtains. It's about you're blocking my way to what I want. And if we do that with each other, we do it with God. Only we don't think we do. We go, well, I don't do that. I would never hate God. Yeah, you do. Because God stands in the way of stuff you want for yourself. Because we're so foolish, we think, i got to have what I want for myself. I am my own sovereign. I know what I need and want. God says, I know better than you know what you need or want. My image and likeness is stamped on you. If you'll trust me, you'll find out. See, none of us us are, are guilty of spectacular acts of terrorism. None of us are responsible for the death of of dozens or thousands of people at our hands. That's sin, but it's sin to a greater scale. Yes, we all get it. But we don't have to be guilty to that scale. We have other ways of taking people out with words and avoidances to their lasting hurt. We shame people. God sees the substance of our sin. Not just the scale, and it's the substance that makes us enemies. For the second week, did you notice for the second week, the second time in Romans 5, we get a more than statement? You see it in verse 11? It was in verse 4 last week, verse, or actually verse 3 last week. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, that's verse 3, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And now verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's more? Yeah, with God, yes. He doesn't just cover our sin. You know what the more here is? He doesn't just cover your sin, verse 9, justified by his blood. 
He befriends you. More than this, we, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 11, there's more than with God. It would be quite enough. It would be more than expected. It would be grace unbelievable if God merely forgave us and then had this antiseptic relationship with us that's all forensic, all legal. If that was all we got from God, a stay of execution, thank you, Lord. But we get more. Why? Because God is love. Don't you forget that. He relates to us not just as his subjects needing pardon, but sons and daughters who need him to be everything he has promised to be for us in Jesus. Need him and want him. I mean, when you've experienced reconciliation, these words in verses 10 and 11, reconciliation is repeated. When you've experienced reconciliation, isn't the mark of that wanting him? Isn't this how we tell we love him back? I mean, there's a relational component within the body of Christ, how we conduct ourselves with each other, where we indicate our love for God, loving him back. But there's also in our own experience a draw to God, a longing for his appearing, a wanting him. This is the experience of being reconciled, the experience of eternal more. God relates to us not just as subjects, but as people whom He wants, whom He likes, whom He loves. That's the beauty of this passage, and that's why this passage preaches itself this morning. And all we did to get all this and more from God is we got lost. Praise be to Him, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 